Section 24, The Book of Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Baring Gould. 24. Why the National Gallery should not attract so many visitors as, say, the British Museum, I cannot explain. The latter does not contain much that, one would suppose, appeals to the interest of the ordinary sightseer. What knows of such prehistoric flints and scratched bones? Of Assyrian sculpture? Of Egyptian hieroglyphics? The Greek and Roman sanctuary is cold and dead. The paintings of the National Gallery glow with color, and are instinct with life. Yet somehow a few listless wanderers saunter, yawning through the National Gallery, where swarms pour through the halls of the British Museum, and talk and pass remarks about objects there exposed, of the date and meaning of which they have not the faintest conception. I was thinking of this problem, and endeavouring to unravel it one morning, whilst sitting in the room for English masters at the great collection in Trafalgar Square. At the same time another thought forced itself upon me. I had been through the rooms devoted to foreign schools, and had then come into that given over to Reynolds, Moreland, Gainsborough, Constable, and Hogarth. The morning had been for a while propitious, but towards noon a dense umber-tinted fog had come on, making it all but impossible to see the pictures, and quite impossible to do them justice. I was tired, and so seated myself on one of the chairs, and fell into the consideration first of all of why the National Gallery is not as popular as it should be and secondly how it was that the british school had no beginnings like those in italy and the netherlands we can see the art of the painter from its first initiation in the italian peninsula and among the flemings it starts on its progress like a child we can trace every stage of its growth not so with english art it springs to life in full and splendid maturity who were there before reynolds and gainsborough and hogarth the great names of those portrait and subject painters who have left their canvases upon the walls of our country houses were those of foreigners, Holbein, Neller, Van Dyck, and Lely for portraits, and Monignier for flower and fruit pieces. Landscapes, figure subjects were all importations, none homegrown. How came that about? Was there no limner that was native? Was it that fashion trampled on homegrown pictorial beginnings as it flouted and spurned native music? Here was food for contemplation, dreaming in the brown fog, looking through it without seeing its beauties at Hogarth's painting of Lavinia as Polypeachum, without wondering how so indifferent a beauty could have captivated the Duke of Bolton and held him for thirty years. I was recalled to myself and my surroundings by the strange conduct of a lady who had seated herself on a chair near me, also discouraged by the fog and awaiting its dispersion. I had not noticed her particularly. At the present moment I do not remember particularly what she was like. So far as I can recollect, she was middle-aged, and was quite yet well-dressed. It was not her face nor her dress that attracted my attention and disturbed the current of my thoughts. The effect I speak of was produced by her strange movements and behavior. She had been sitting listless, probably thinking of nothing at all, or nothing in particular, when in turning her eyes around, and finding that she could see nothing of the paintings, she began to study me. This did concern me greatly. A cat may look at the king, but to be contemplated by a lady is a compliment sufficient to please any gentleman. It was not gratified vanity that troubled my thoughts, but the consciousness that my appearance produced. 
first of all a startled surprise, then undisguised alarm, and finally indescribable horror. Now a man can sit quietly leaning on the head of his umbrella and glow internally, warmed and illuminated by the consciousness that he is being surveyed with admiration by a lovely woman, even when he is middle-aged and not fashionably dressed. But no man can maintain his composure when he discovers himself to be an object of aversion and terror. What was it? I passed my hand over my chin and upper lip, thinking it not impossible that I might have forgotten to shave that morning, and in my confusion, not considering that the fog would prevent the lady from discovering neglect in this particular, had it occurred, which it had not, I am a little careless, perhaps, about shaving when in the country, but when in town, never. The next idea that occurred to me was a smut. Had a London black curdled in that dense pea-soup atmosphere, descended on my nose and blackened it? I hastily drew my silk handkerchief from my pocket, moistened it, and passed it over my nose and then each cheek. I then turned my eyes into the corners and looked at the lady, to see whether by this means I got rid of what was objectionable in my personal appearance. Then I saw that her eyes, dilated with horror, were riveted, not on my face, but on my leg. My leg! What on earth could that harmless member have in it so terrifying? The morning had been dull. There had been rain in the night, and I admit that on leaving my hotel I had turned up the bottoms of my trousers. That is a proceeding not so uncommon, not so outrageous as to account for the stony stare of this woman's eyes. If that were all, I would turn my trousers down. Then I saw her shrink from the chair on which she sat into one further remove from me, but still with her eyes fixed on my leg, about the level of my knee. She had let fall her umbrella, and was grasping the seat of her chair with both hands as she backed from me. I hardly need to say that I was greatly disturbed in mind and feeling, and forgot all about the origin of the English schools of painters, and the question why the British Museum is more popular than the National Gallery. Thinking that I might have been spattered by a hansom whilst crossing Oxford Street, I passed my hand down my side hastily, with a sense of annoyance, and all at once something cold, clammy that sent a thrill to my heart, and made me start and take a step forward. At the same moment, the lady with a cry of horror sprang to her feet, and with raised hands fled from the room, leaving her umbrella where it had fallen. There were other visitors to the picture gallery besides ourselves who had been passing through the saloon. They turned at her cry, and looked in surprise after her. The policeman stationed in the room came to me and asked what had happened. I was in such agitation that I hardly knew what to answer. I told him that I could explain what had occurred little better than himself. I had noticed that the lady had worn an odd expression, and had behaved in most extraordinary fashion, and that he best take charge of her umbrella, and wait for her return to claim it. This questioning by the officer was vexing, as it prevented me from at once and on the spot investigating the cause of her alarm and mine hers at something she must have seen on my leg, and mine at something I had distinctly felt creeping up my leg. The numbing and sickening effect on me of the touch of the object I had not seen was not to be shaken off at once. Indeed, I felt as though my hand were contaminated, and that I could have no rest until I had thoroughly washed the hand, and, if possible, washed away the feeling that had been produced. I looked on the floor. I examined my leg, but saw nothing. As I wore my overcoat, it was probable that in rising from my seat, the skirt had fallen over my trousers and hidden the thing, whatever it was. I therefore hastily removed my overcoat and shook it. 
Then I looked at my trousers. There was nothing whatever on my leg, and nothing fell from my overcoat when shaken. Accordingly, I reinvested myself and hastily left the gallery, then took my way as speedily as I could, without actually running to Charing Cross Station, where I went into Faulkner's Bath and Hairdressing Establishment and asked for hot water to thoroughly wash my hand and well soap it. I bathed my hand in water as hot as I could endure it, employed a carbolic soap, and then, after having a good brush down, especially on my left side where my hand had encountered the object that had so affected me, I left. I had entertained the intention of going to the Princess Theatre that evening, and of securing a ticket that morning, but all thought of theatre-going was gone from me. I could not free my heart from the sense of nausea and cold that had been produced by the touch. I went into Gotti's to have lunch, and ordered something. I forget what, but when served I found my appetite was gone. I could eat nothing. The food inspired me with disgust. I thrust it from me untasted, and after drinking a couple of glasses of claret, left the restaurant and returned to my hotel. Feeling sick and faint, I threw my overcoat on the sofa back and cast myself on my bed. I do not know that there was any particular reason for my doing so, but as I lay, my eyes were on my great coat. The density of the fog had passed away, and there was light again, not first quality, but sufficient for a Londoner to swear by, so that I could see everything in my room, though through a veil, darkly. I do not think my mind was occupied in any way, about the only occasions on which, to my knowledge, my mind is actually passive or inert when crossing the channel in the foam from Dover to Calais when I am always, in every weather, abjectly seasick and thoughtless. But as I now lay on my bed, uncomfortable, squeamish, without knowing why, I was in the same inactive mental condition, but not for long. I saw something that startled me. First it appeared to me as if the lapel of my overcoat were in movement, being raised. I did not pay much attention to this, as I supposed that the garment was sliding down to the seat of the sofa from the back, and that this displacement of gravity caused the movement I observed. But this I soon saw was not the case. That which moved the lapet was something in the pocket that was struggling to get out. I could now see that it was working its way up the inside, and that when it reached the opening it lost balance and fell down again. I could make this out by the projections and indentations in the cloth. These moved as the creature, or whatever it was, worked its way up the lining. A mouse, I said, and forgot my seediness. I was interested. The little rascal, however did he contrive to seat himself in my pocket, and I have worn that overcoat all morning. But no, it was not a mouse. I saw something white poke its way out from under the lapet, and in another moment an object was revealed that, though revealed, I could not understand, nor could I distinguish what it was. Now roused by curiosity, I raised myself on my elbow. In doing this, I made some noise. The bed creaked. Instantly, the something dropped on the floor, lay outstretched for a moment to recover itself, and then began, with motions of a maggot, to run along the floor. There's a caterpillar called the measure, because when it advances, it draws its tail up to where its head is, and then throws forward its full length, and again draws up its extremity, forming at each time a loop and with each step measuring its total length. The object I now saw on the floor was advancing precisely like the measuring caterpillar. It had the color of a cheese maggot, and in length was about three and a half inches. It was not, however, like a caterpillar which is flexible throughout its entire length, but this was, as it seemed to me, 
jointed in two places, one joint being more conspicuous than the other. For some moments I was so completely paralyzed by astonishment that I remained motionless, looking at the thing as it crawled along the carpet, a dull green carpet with darker green, almost black, flowers in it. It had, as it seemed to me, a glossy head, distinctly marked, but the light was not brilliant, and I could not make it out very clearly, and moreover, the rapid movements prevented close scrutiny. Presently, with a shock still more startling than that produced by its apparition at the opening of the pocket of my great coat, I became convinced that what I saw was a finger, a human forefinger, and that the glossy head was no other than the nail. The finger did not seem to have been amputated, there was no sign of blood or laceration where the knuckle should be. But extremity of the finger, or root rather, faded away into indistinctness, and I was unable to make out the root of the finger. I could see no hand no body behind this finger, nothing whatever except a finger that had little token of warm life in it, no coloration as though blood circulated in it, and this finger was in active motion, creeping along the carpet towards the wardrobe that stood against the wall by the fireplace. I sprang off the bed and pursued it. Evidently the finger was alarmed, for it redoubled its pace, reached the wardrobe, and went under it. By the time I had arrived at the article of furniture it had disappeared. I lit a Vesta match and held it beneath the wardrobe that was raised above the carpet about two inches on turned feet, but I could see nothing more of the finger. I got my umbrella and thrust it beneath, and raked it forwards and backwards, right and left, and raked out flue, nothing more solid. I packed my portmanteau the next day and returned to my home in the country. All desire for amusement in town was gone, and the faculty to transact business had departed as well. A languor and qualms had come over me, and my head was in a maze. I was unable to fix my thoughts on anything. At times I was disposed to believe that my wits were deserting me. At others I was on the verge of a severe illness. Anyhow, whether likely to go off my head or not, or to take to my bed, home was the only place for me, and homeward I sped accordingly. On reaching my country habitation, my servant, as usual, took my portmanteau to my bedroom, unstrapped it, but did not unpack it. I object to his throwing out the contents of my Gladstone bag, not that there's anything in it that he may not see, but that he puts my things where I cannot find them again. My clothes, he's welcome to place them where he likes and where they belong, and this latter he knows better than I do. But then I carry about with me other things than a dress suit and changes of linen and flannel. There are letters, paper, books, and the proper destinations of these are known only to myself. A servant has a singular and evil knack of putting away literary matter and odd volumes in such places it takes the owner half a day to find them again. Although I was uncomfortable and my head in a whirl, I opened and unpacked my own portmanteau. As I was thus engaged, I saw something curled up in my collar box, the lid of which had gotten broken by a boot heel impinging on it. I had pulled off the damage cover to see if my collars had been spoiled, when something curled up inside suddenly rose on end and leapt just like a cheese jumper, out of the box, over the edge of the Gladstone bag, and scurried away across the floor in a manner already familiar to me. I could not doubt for a moment what it was. Here was the finger again. It had come with me from London to the country. Whither it went in its turn over the floor I do not know. I was too bewildered to observe. Somewhat later, towards evening, I seated myself in my easy chair, took up a book, and tried to read. I was tired with the journey, with knocking about in town, and the discomfort and alarm produced by the apparition of the finger. I felt worn out. 
I was unable to give my attention to what I read, and before I was aware, was asleep. Roused for an instant by the fall of the book from my hand, I speedily relapsed into unconsciousness. I'm not sure that a doze in an armchair ever does good. It usually leaves me in a semi-stupid condition, and with a headache. Five minutes in a horizontal position on my bed is worth thirty in a chair. That is my experience. In sleeping in a sedentary position, the head is a difficulty. It drops forward or rolls on one side or the other, and it has to be brought back into a position in which the line to the center of gravity runs through the trunk. Otherwise, the head carries the body over in a sort of general capsize out of the chair onto the floor. I slept on the occasion of which I am speaking pretty healthily because deadly weary. But I was brought to waking, not by my head falling over the arm of the chair and my trunk tumbling after it, but by a feeling of cold extending up from my throat to my heart. When I awoke I was in a diagonal position, with my right ear resting on my right shoulder, and exposing the left side of my throat, and it was here, where the juggler vein throbs, that I felt the greatest intensity of cold. At once I shrugged my left shoulder, rubbing my neck with the collar of my coat in doing so. Immediately something fell off, upon the floor, and again I saw the finger. My disgust, horror, were intensified when I perceived that it was dragging something after it, which might have been an old stocking, which I took at first glance for something of the sort. The evening sun shone through my window, in a brilliant golden ray that lighted the object as it scrambled along. With this illumination I was able to distinguish what the object was. It is not easy to describe, but I will make the attempt. The finger I saw was solid in material. What it drew after was neither, or was in a nebulous, protoplasmic condition. The finger was attached to a hand that was curdling into matter, and in the process of acquiring solidity. Attached to the hand was an arm, in a very filmy condition, and this arm belonged to a human body in a still more vaporous, immaterial condition. This was being dragged along the floor by the finger, just as a silkworm might pull after it the tangle of its web. I could see legs and arms and head, and a coat-tail tumbling about and interlacing and disentangling again in a promiscuous manner. There were no bone, no muscle, no substance in the figure. These members were attached to the trunk, which was spineless, but they had evidently no functions, and were wholly dependent on the finger which pulled them along in a jumble of parts as it advanced. In such confusion did the whole vaporous matter seem, that I think, I cannot say for certain that it was so, but the impression left on my mind was, that one of the eyeballs was looking out a nostril, and the tongue lolling out of one of the ears. It was, however, only for a moment that I saw this germ body. I cannot call it by another name that which had not more substance than smoke. I saw it only so long as it was being dragged athwart by the ray of sunlight. The moment it was pulled jerkily out of the beam into the shadow beyond, I could see nothing of it, only the crawling finger. I had not sufficient moral energy or physical force in me to rise, pursue, and stamp on the finger, and grind it with my heel into the floor. Both seemed drained out of me. What had become of the finger, whither it went, how it managed to secrete itself, I do not know. I had lost the power to inquire. I sat in my chair, chilled, staring before me into space. Please, sir, a voice said. There is a Mr. Square below, electrical engineer. Eh? I looked dreamily around. My valet was at the door. Please, sir, the gentleman would be glad to be allowed to go over the house and see that all the electrical apparatus is in order. Oh, indeed. Yes, show him up. Section 24. The Book of Ghosts. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, www.voiceover-solutions.com The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Barring Gould 24.